Okay, I'll just say this. I'm so over making a case. <laughs> I don't want to make any more cases. <laughs> We've been talking about this for 7,980,000 years. <laughs> What's there to make a case for? Like, just open your eyes, look around. We've made the case. And I had felt so many times, it was, I felt like it was demeaning making a business case. Nothing about us without us. What does that mean? Well, in the case of product and service design, it means that designers shouldn't be designing for the most marginalized, but instead with them. Why do toy designers design toys for girls and toys for boys? Why are products that address the needs of people with disabilities an exception rather than the rule? Why are the most marginalized people not at the decision-making table when products and services are conceptualized and launched? Welcome to this seventh and final episode of Designing for Everyone, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy, or GATE. I'm Sarah Kaplan, she, her pronouns, and a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management and founding director of GATE and your podcast host. In this seven-part limited series, we are featuring a high-impact set of conversations we had in April 2023 at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. In this panel discussion, we asked product designers about inclusive product, service, and program design and what it looks like. Regine Gilbert is an industry assistant professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. She is a user experience designer, educator, and author with over 10 years of experience working in technology. She has a strong belief in making the world a more accessible place that starts and ends with the user. Regine's areas of research focus on digital accessibility, inclusive design, and immersive experiences. And she is author of the book, Inclusive Design for a Digital World, Designing with Accessibility in Mind. We'll put the link in the show notes. Jahan Manton is the co-founder of Project Inkblot, a team of designers and futurists who equip people to become co-designers of an equitable world by creating and leading programs that center Black, Indigenous, and POC designers as well as leading transformative design education programs to equity-aspiring leaders in tech and media spaces. All of Inkblot's work is in service of activating a movement of people transforming who they are, what they design, and who they design with through their trademark proprietary framework, Inkblot Design. Vanessa Raponi is a senior product development engineer at Spinmaster, a Canadian-founded international toy company that created such brands as Paw Patrol and Hatchimals, meaning she designs and creates toys for a living. Wouldn't we all love to do that? Vanessa is the founder of Engiqueers Canada, a national nonprofit that advocates for intersectional queer inclusion in the engineering profession, which has brought her from coast to coast to present in panels, sessions, and talks as an expert in diversity, inclusion, and equity. Their conversation was moderated by Gates' new academic director, Sonia Kang, who is Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resource Management, Canada Research Chair in Identity, Diversity and Inclusion, and the University of Toronto Mississauga's Special Advisor on Anti-Racism and Equity. Her research explores the challenges and opportunities of diversity, including strategies for mitigating the far-reaching effects of stigma and harnessing the power of diversity for society and organizations alike. They're going to be looking at designing with disabilities in mind, at queer inclusion, at racial biases in program design, and how to change how we think about design in order to be more inclusive. 
First, I want to start really broad. Um, and so really thinking about something that we heard earlier, which was um, that we can't design for the margins, we have to design with the margins. Um, and this is really a key theme as well in inclusive design, right? This idea of nothing about us without us. So I want to ask each of you what this idea means to you in your work, what our audience should think about as they try to be more inclusive in their product and service design. So I'll ask each of you, I'll start with Jahan because you're so far away. You're like, so we'll go to you and then we'll give each of you a chance to answer. Okay, thank you. It's a much different view up here. Than, uh, I'm very used to this, the seat over there. Um, yeah, I think a few things about that. And you know, the first thing that came to my mind when I knew you would ask this question was my mom. And my mom is like the best. And she's a retired teacher. She's a very active senior citizen. And, you know, I grew up in New York, from New York. And um, there, I've noticed these, these new ads where it's like these senior citizen ads. But now they're saying older adults. And my mom was like, what is this thing with older adults? I'm a senior. No one asked us. And I was like, wow, Ma. Yeah, that's true. And she loves requesting her senior citizen discount. You know, that's like her thing. And she doesn't want to be an older adult. She wants to be a senior. And she's like, no one asks us this at all. And I just remember being struck by that when she said that. And the other thing that occurred to me is like, sometimes you can become the us. And I thought about my dad, you know, who died 12 years ago. And he was sick. He was ill. And in the kind of later stages, he had to use a cane. And he was like very active. You know, he was like, you know, basketball player and like really athletic. He was a gym teacher. And I remember one day he said to me, um, Jahan, I've never ever noticed how many people have canes in this city. And just like getting on the train and going up and down the stairs was like, became so cumbersome. So he became us, you know? And you know, the other thing I think of is like, even when you're part of the us, you still mess up. You know, our work has been around technology and racial equity and design, and we've made so many mistakes, and we're the us. And so I think that nothing without us, nothing about us without us is like 100% on, and it is totally the way. Um, but there are all these other kind of nuances to it. And the very last thing I'll say is that I think it's really important to think about and shift to not just nothing without us, Sorry, nothing about us without us, but also empowering the us to create things of our own. So we don't actually need to be dependent on someone creating something for us. Like we can just create from us and design, you know, from us. And I, I say that because we ran a program for Black, Indigenous, and POC designers, technologists, creatives who were creating projects that benefited their community. You know, things like a tech-enabled agricultural app to provide um, land for like black farmers. And it was so empowering to just have that expressed and have that coming out and have the space to be, you know, supported in that. So that's where I land on that. Nice. Thank you for that. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for the example of both of your parents too. I yeah. will say the older adults thing, I think that's like an academic creep thing. So <laughs> I did my PhD in psychology. One mm. of the things that I studied was older adults. Mm. And I feel like this happens a lot where like academics invent these terms that no one mm. uses and then it gets into policy and then it gets into like the ad and the bus stop or whatever right. it was. 
um, and then no one identifies with them. So well, I'm going to tell my mom. Sure she's pissed. <laughs> <laughs> this was like 2005. Like it's it's taken a while, but the creep is real. Um, okay, Regina, go ahead. Oh, hi everybody. Hello. Uh, so I get the pleasure of teaching a course called Looking Forward at NYU. It's a course where we teach students about assistive technologies that blind and low vision folks use. But I co-teach this class with Gus Chalkius and Gus is blind. So I am a UX designer. I teach UX design, but I also teach assistive technologies. However, I can't teach assistive technologies that I don't use on a daily basis because there's nothing like involving people who have lived experience. So when it comes to nothing about us without us, that's what it is. It's people with lived experience that you probably don't have. And so we, we actually make a good balance for each other because I bring the UX design side, he brings the assistive tech side, uh, specifically around uh, blind and low vision. And our students always work with a real life client. This semester they're working with a school called IHOPE in New York City that is a school specifically for disabled, um, uh, not just children, but it's people from ages like uh, 10 to 8, 21. And we went to the school, the students got to see how the, the, the students of that school get around or don't get around because there's there's a necessity for navigation. And I think when you think about nothing about us without us, I mean, we can all think about what this means in relation to our own work. I think we can all do that, right? Can I get a yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, so I, we can all think about that. I, I don't see any other way to work. Another thing is don't design for, don't do for people. Nobody likes that. Like, let's be real. When you make it so that it's with people, they feel included. There is no worse feeling than being left out. Every single person in this room has been left out of something. And we seem to keep repeating the same behavior over and over. We seem to keep leaving people out because we don't think about it, right? So it's really important that nothing about us without us, I hope that you all, if you take one thing today away, is that you remember that. Thank you. Vanessa? I love this uh, concept so much because I think it's so relevant to the premise of representation. Um, as a queer woman of color who's an engineer and a project manager and a manager, um, having that opportunity to have the voice and seat at the table throughout the product development journey is so important because, you know, I work at a company where we make hundreds of products and I've personally touched hundreds of products over the last several years. And I, I love how much it was touched on the last panel about the realities of how quickly we are trying to move all the time and the impact of the economic drive behind it. So I was so excited to have the opportunity to work on a product that was explicitly about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And it was actually created from local Toronto high school students um, who came up with this product idea, came up with, it, it was kind of like a coloring set that had um, these templates of genderqueer fashion designers and indigenous artists and a black astronaut. And like these kids had created this incredible concept and we were able to actually bring it all the way to market and work directly with them through that journey. So it was this phenomenal experience. Um, and it was like this embodied to a T of the creators of this very inclusive design got to be involved in it. 
But as I said, I've worked on so many products like Rubik's Cube, Etch-A-Sketch, like things that we all know and see all the time that are in the hundreds of thousands and millions of units globally, internationally. And the context of the different designs is, is really important because what was so great about what we were doing for that one project was that it was Canadian and it was local and that was really important to what we were doing. But most of the products that I work on is a completely different context and scale. And we're actively trying to get them out to as many people as possible. So we leverage a lot of focus groups and making sure that kids, because it's kids toys that I'm making. So making sure that kids are actually getting, you know, hands on the toys throughout the development. Um, and then the, it was also mentioned a lot about multidisciplinary work. That is, there's absolutely no way a product can go from a sketch to your shelf at home without like a hundred different disciplines being involved throughout every different stage. So having those collaborations, like 90% of all of our jobs happen actually in a meeting together because everything needs so much collaboration. It's so rare to have those moments of independent work. And I think that that's where you can really weave in that inclusive design throughout the journey. Thanks. I'm going to stick with you for a sec because I really think each of you on this panel one of the things that really informs your design is that engagement and advocacy for the groups that you're working with. So really like getting into the kind of like logistics of your design process, how does that engagement kind of inform what you are designing? And then how does the design kind of influence your engagement? Like what's that cycle like? And I like how you were talking about the method piece, right? Because people are always asking like, how do we do this? You talked about the focus groups. Um, just kind of the specifics of your process. Yeah. So um, again, with toys, really what we're trying to do, especially at my company, is that we're trying to innovate and do things that have never been done before, but also within the constraints of it's a kid's toy, probably has to sell for about $20 or less. It probably is going to have like a, a one to two year life cycle before we're expected to have the next trend and the next big thing. Um, so you have all these constraints that you're working with, but at the beginning of the design process, it really is, we have inputs from all over the place, whether it's inventors externally, internal designers, um, and then they'll come with these different ideas for the toys that can fit into our businesses, our business units and our brands, and how we can, again, innovate and play in the space. Um, and then throughout that process, it's, you know, you go from the sketch to the 3D render to the physical prototype and at every single point, there's always, you know, leadership alignment and you have to really present and pitch where you're at internally throughout. Um, so at every single one of those moments, you're getting tons of feedback throughout consumer insights, throughout, um, you know, the, the play testing you're doing. And those are where all the opportunities to make changes to the design come in at the upfront before we've gotten to the point, you know, we work a lot in plastic. So the injection molding tool moment when you've like actually kind of solidified the design. Um, it's really iterative. And so I think that's where, um, again, going back to the multiple people at the table and the ability, like my engineering team, for instance, has a lot of female leadership and we're constantly encouraged to speak up in any meeting, regardless of who's there. It doesn't matter if the founder of the company's there, like voice your opinion, vocalize the concerns. Um, and I think that because there's so many moments and opportunities to reflect on the design, I think that's where those voices are become so important because it's the moments to really reflect on that. Thanks. So what do those moments look like for you? Jane? So I teach students. Uh, so 
I'll, I'll just give an example of this semester. My, I'm trying, I'm doing a proof of concept to have a small group of students, um, small teams work with a co-designer who is disabled. Uh, my research is in uh, inclusion and accessibility in the extended reality space. So that's looking at inclusion and accessibility in augmented reality and virtual reality. And what does that look like? So I was thinking the best way to involve my students in understanding what is best is to have them work with a co-designer with disabilities. So the way that I started though was teaching students about what accessibility is, what does it mean specifically around augmented reality, what does it mean for virtual reality, teaching my students about ableism, which I wish I would have heard more of today, along with the word disabled. Um, we have ableism in our society in every aspect of it and everything that we do, we see it all the time. And so it was important for me to inform the students of ableism so that they understand what their bias is when they're going in and speaking with this co-designer. So those were two like really big pieces of, of training people on accessibility, training them on um, ableism and disability etiquette. Because frankly, I feel like a lot of people don't actually know how to interact with people with disabilities and they act a fool. I mean, I don't know how else to say it except look up hashtag abled's are weird because uh, you'll, you'll find a bunch of things that people end up doing and saying that are highly inappropriate. And so those things were very important to me. Uh, just yesterday, actually, one of the co-designers came in to try VR for the very, he, he had never tried VR before and um, he has some mobility issues, but it was great to see how the students worked with him because they had had that prior training. So I think it's very important to have that upfront. Thanks, Johan, you wanna add? Yeah, I'll add that. Um, so our company had created a framework called Inkblot Design, and I love what y'all said because it's almost like a framework for how to start to bring these types of inquiries into your design process. So the framework is divided up into three kind of portions. It's not like a linear thing, but it's basically like, who, who are you? <laughs> One, like, who are you? And who's on your team? And how are all these identities influencing what you're designing? Because they are. And then we just like embed ourselves into the design and we're gonna do it because we're humans and that's what we do. So actually taking time to start to get a sense of like who, who is on your team and what's happening there is so critical to what you're designing. And the second piece is around, well, what are you designing? And then the third piece is who are you designing with? And that was like our tagline for better word, like design with, not for. And within that, we have a set of inquiries. And this is not the exact quote, but there's like this Einstein quote that's like, if if I had if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend the first fifty five minutes like thinking up the questions, and that's so profound. And you know, our framework is not it's not a methodology. It's not really answers. Not an end to it. It's just a way to start to inquire within it. So some of those questions are like, who are you excluding? Just right from the gate, who are you excluding? You know, um, are you centering? We say misrepresented you know, people in your design decisions. Um, you know, what's the worst possible outcome of this project or this idea, or this technology and on which communities? And it's really fascinating to see people, these teams starting to 
like delve into these questions. And sometimes, most of the time, you ended up with more questions. But it led to totally different types of, of conversations. And even in the like, who are you conversation, there were people that were like, you know, I've worked with Dan in marketing for five years and I've never had a real conversation with him. And in the last 20 minutes, I've gotten to know him more than, than I ever had. So I think that even with all the tools and the practices, you can have like all of those things, but it's like actually the relational piece that starts to move things um, forward. I love how all of you talked about sharing and kind of connecting based on your own experiences. Um, given though that we live in an ableist, racist kind of colonial space that people are coming into, how do you, or how have you created kind of safe spaces for people to share their unique views? So like even working in STEM, right? It's hard for people who don't fit this like prototype of masculinity to kind of share in those spaces. So how do you kind of open it up so that people feel safe to share those? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. So um, for me personally, as a queer woman of color in engineering, when I first got to engineering school, there was just a dramatic lack of queer representation in my undergrad. Um, and I felt like I was one of a handful of people who were out, um, even though, you know, you hear all these things like everyone experiments in college and I'm like, where? Um, so it was just like a very straight <laughs> kind of environment. Um, but that's when I kind of created Queers on my campus and then seen where it's come over the last decade. Like we hosted our first national conference earlier this year and getting to see like a room of 200 people at the gala, we had a drag queen come into a professional engineering space and it was the greatest moment of my life. Um, so just getting to see these students from all over Canada connecting about being queer engineers and um, you know, all these different intersectional identities, like the communities and you know, the employment resource groups and and the like formal spaces, I think are coming and getting created over time and becoming a bigger focus for lots of different environments, especially something like STEM, which is like, you know, chronically underrepresented in all the different spaces. Um, but then I think, you know, like more on the day to day, it's just finding people who are supportive of your causes and, you know, the things that you care about, even if you're in an environment where maybe people who look like you are not necessarily there, if they're advocating for the same thing that you're advocating for it's kind of like finding your allies fundamentally because then you can work together to help make the change that you need to see um because it's i always say like decisions are made at every table in every email like the all the micro things like really really build up to what ends up getting into product what ends up getting into design what ends up you know as the final decision so the more that you can kind of collaborate together and insert that kind of narrative throughout all of these things, I think the better end result you can really get. And I'm gonna reiterate something that I've heard throughout the day today um, with my previous experience in industry and my experience as an educator is I tell you know, people who I used to work with and people that are now my students that you need to know yourself. This is something that we've heard all throughout the day. I say the best designers I know, know themselves very well. And that is something I say from the very beginning of working with anybody, because you need to understand who you are and what your bias are, because that influences the way that you design. Another thing that I've incorporated actually into my classes 
I was talking about this last night, is self-care, which we don't talk about enough, especially when we are working with marginalized groups or we're, we're an advocate or we're, you know, we're advocating for uh, certain groups or we're the ones who are doing the research that is heavy. There is somebody that we need to take care of and that's ourselves, right? And that's something that I've started to incorporate in uh, that I think is an important piece for people feeling um, like they're doing good work, right? You have to know yourself, but you also have to take care of yourself. Yeah, that's, we had a whole conversation about <laughs> That's so true. Um, well, when we, so when COVID happened, our work was, you know, in person, right? Then COVID happens and it goes virtual. And I was like, there's no way this is going to work. These conversations are hard in person. You're not supposed to do it virtually and like be facilitating virtually. And I was like, we're not going to be able to create like intimacy or like connection. And I was wrong. And I mean, nothing's the same as in person, but I was wrong. I was proven wrong. And um, we learned a lot of like, tips and tricks and like ways to create like warmth in like a zoom room and like open up these conversations and people really really opened up more than i anticipated and i think one of the things we did um to answer your question sonia was we we just created the space for like however you showed up was fine you could just be how you want to be i don't want to pretend they don't want to pretend we're on zoom it's already tiring you need to be off camera Fine. You want to go make some steak while you're on the Zoom room? That's fine. I don't care. You want to lie down and like have your head on a pillow? Like that's perfectly fine. And we, the thing when when you work in any kind of equity, the hard part is then trying to be equitable because <laughs> then you see where you're not. <laughs> and uh, you know, even folks who are more like introverted, you know, it was like just use the chat. It's fine. Or like calling on folks, even when they were quiet and giving them the option to like, you can just say pass, you don't have to. I learned that a lot of times introverts are just processing. You know, if you pick me, I'll just start rambling. That's like my <laughs> MO, because I'm just more extroverted. You know what I mean? But like introverts will be, and I, I learned from that, you know? And it was like, yeah, you're just processing. That's cool, just process, I'll come back to you. Or not, it's fine, you know? So I think kind of making that space made, um, a huge difference and it was just a learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that, you know, we hear this all the time about kind of meeting people where they are, but I think it's so important to kind of create that space where you can also see where you have not been meeting people where you are, right? I think that's like one of the biggest challenges in this work is seeing your own biases as well. Totally. Um, what about other types of barriers that you've encountered? Like if people are kind of trying to get into bring inclusive design into their work, um, what are some challenges that you've had and how have you overcome them? I think there's just so many systems in place that exist today and so much structure um, that it can be an uphill battle to, to make change sometimes. Um, so for one example for me, like I remember I just finished out of university and I had this vision of, oh, I'm going to come into the toy industry and bring like shatter all these gender norms and do all these things. And I was so excited. And, you know, at the time when I started, we, we, the way we literally structure toy is the boys category and the girls category. Like literally the team is called girls and boys and the products are girls and boys. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, so, but myself and a few people who were really passionate about equity, diversity, and inclusion 
we're able to help escalate to leadership about why that needs to change internally before we can even begin to start looking at the dolls and how are we making them more inclusive, looking at the, you know, cars and changing them. Um, so we actually, just about a year or two ago, were able to formally change the names to now be Wheels in Action and Dolls and Interactive. So like, yeah, it was a huge thing. So being able to, because if, if we're already using our like language like that, like how are we even gonna be able to talk about the product? And I remember I used to sit in meetings where it was like, how do we make this girlier? How do, cause you're, you're trying to appeal to your target audience. And again, you're making hundreds of products. This is intended for a four-year-old girl. So how specifically will a parent of a four-year-old girl know to buy this exact product? Like. I get the philosophy behind it, um, but it can be really soul crushing when you're like, well, a four-year-old girl looks very different, <laughs> like all across the world. And especially one thing I'm always really frustrated by is the types of skill sets that are embedded into what a kid is going to learn from a girl toy versus a boy toy and how early that's getting integrated into all of society. Um, but I digress. So I think that it's important to look at the systems and trying to you know, you got to start somewhere and just, it, I, I witnessed that change over multiple years and it was a lot of conversations behind the scenes and the senior leaders who were on board had to go through different, like there, there was like a financial implication to our reporting. Like there's so many things in what already exists. So I think, you know, this is where it's, it's again, it's about making the amount of change that you're capable of making within your own sphere and letting that influence kind of bubble up and change because now, as our designers are coming forward with what's the best wheels and action product, they can now, you know, they don't necessarily need to be like, what's the product for the boy? So it starts somewhere, you know. Yeah, I think that patience part is really important because change does take such a long time and it can be really discouraging. And so I think that's where your self-care piece is super important as well. I'll turn it back Definitely. to you. So in my past life, before I was a professor, I was an entrepreneur. I had my own consulting business where I would work with um, different companies who had typically been sued uh, around accessibility, and I would come in and make plans for them and do trainings. And um, what I found was that a lot of times people just wanted the easy way out, right? They wanted the quickest way to get um, out of the trouble they were in. And I would give them a plan that was like three years long to fix the things that they should have done in the first place. Because when you try to retrofit accessibility, oh my goodness, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough and it's a lot of money. And yeah, just start, start with inclusion from the start, everybody. Um, but it's not always possible. So one of the things that I would do is a workshop that um, where I would have folks design for their future selves. Because one of the things, and I started doing this when I was doing the workshops, and now I ask my students, is, and I'll ask everybody in this room, is who do you think about the most? Myself. That's right. <laughs> so the truth is we do think about ourselves the most. There's nothing wrong with that. However, when we are trying to do for others, it's hard. It is very difficult for us to think about other people. And so because of that, when you're working in an organization, it's a lot of individuals thinking about themselves and not thinking about their customer, the end user. And so that becomes a problem, right? Because that could be anyone. And so I would have them think that, you know, if you sit all day and your back is hurting, what does that mean? How are those knees? Do you wear glasses now? 
do you think your vision is going, going to magically improve, right? How's that hearing? Are you wearing earbuds all the time, right? So all these things, they, and I would ask them, like, what happens as you age? And they would list all these negative things about as they age. And then I say, well, what about you? And then all of a sudden they became positive, right? Like <laughs> it was hilarious. So that would be my way of getting them to start thinking about the fact that each and every single one of us is going to experience disability at one point or another. For sure, 100% it's going to happen. And so why aren't we making products and experiences that are accessible? It just blows my mind that we don't. If not for whoever is out there, for our future selves. So that's one of the things that I, I've done in the past. I love that. Um, challenges? Okay, how much time? <laughs> um, I don't wanna go down just like a depressing long road of challenges. So I'll just like name a couple with companies. The, the sense of urgency is beyond. And I know that's like not just with tech companies, it's just like the pressure to produce and produce and at the rate, there's like no space for like slow design and for like being intentional and taking a breather. And that creates a lot of other problems. And fortunately, or not, depending who you're talking to, we were, um, our, our programs were really for the most part, they were not mandatory. So the people that were coming were the people that you know, really wanted to see things shift. And they were like, we got to do something. And they would get so energized. It's like we were like injecting them with like this like energy and they're like, woo, change. And then it's like they get like whack-a-mole. And then you get stopped because maybe not all of leadership is on board. Or maybe like you really want to start taking more time with like user research and like you really want to, but there's not really funded. And like those things get stopped. Um, so I'll say that. And then I think there's a big challenge around like history, like people not knowing, um, the history of things. You know, we used to do a whole case study on Kodak and I don't know if y'all know about Kodak and the Shirley card, but the technology behind Kodak is racially biased. Like that's how it started. Like the model they used to create the technology was based on a white woman named Shirley. And every time they updated the model it was always a white woman. So the tones meant that, you know, black folks, folks with melanin didn't show up the same way in, in photos. And it wasn't until chocolate makers and uh, furniture makers started complaining that the photos were not rendering correctly, that they were like, oh, we have to change the technology. This is deep, it's insidious, and it has to be known. So even in sessions, there were like tech folks that were like, wait, what, what? You know, thankfully we have things like Google Pixel and you know, real tone technology that's like correcting that. But I think it's like, if we spend our whole life trying to correct something, it's a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in like, what can we create that's new? What can we like generate? And I, the, the final thing I'll say, just to bring it back to the self-care thing is just like really frank, you know, um, our company kind of closed the chapter on that part of our business in, in March, not part of that business. And we're creating something new. And part of it became that um, the energy behind like trying to convince and defend, it's like a certain, has a certain type of flavor. And after a while, it just, uh, it took a toll. And we had to be like, is this, 
where we want to put all our energies right now. And so now we're shifting to something new, you know, and it's exciting. We'll always be centering, you know, misrepresented folks in our work. It's like my reason for being. Um, but there are many ways to support. There are many ways to do that. And it's not to poo-poo folks who are, um, you know, working with orgs or companies because that it's it has to happen. It's like so critical. Um, but I think that in this field, I've met a lot of people working in equity, et cetera. And there are a lot of folks, y'all, honestly, that are unwell. They're not well. They are burnt out. They're stressed. They're anxious. And like they need so much support. And like, if companies are serious about it, they gotta like really do it. Mm -hmm. And there's actually so much stuff that they can do. So it's like, are you gonna do it or are you not gonna do it? Because if you're not gonna do it, why are we here? I think also that's part of the sustainability piece as well, right? Like if we're gonna do the work, then you have to put in the time to make it sustainable. And I think, you know, Regina, your advice about thinking about the future is part of that sustainability piece as well. Like you're gonna have to do this stuff for a long time, like generations of like, how long have we been talking about this issue, gender equity, like forever? So it's literally like generations and you have to be kind of, you know, willing to, design in a way and like switch things up when they're not working. Um, I have two questions that are related to each other here, which I think is like really cool. So I'm gonna ask them together. So the first part of the question is asking about the role of governments. And let's just say for broader term to link these questions together, just like regulations and inclusive design. Um, and then this, the secondary part of this is, and then what advice do you have for new designers or companies who wanna go beyond that? So we know like the regulations are going to be like pretty basic. So how do you, you know, get those basic guidelines in place with the role of the government there? But then what's your advice for pushing beyond that? Like, how do you push people to go beyond the minimum? Yeah, I think in the context of what I do, it's always, always, always safety first. So I think as long as, you know, a child is going to be safe using this product, then that's kind of our baseline. And for us, the context of safety is typically measured in terms of chemical safety, mechanical, like physical. How much psychological safety analysis do we do? I don't know. Um, so that's probably maybe an interesting discussion to have. Um, but again, we also work a lot in the innovative space. So a lot of our products are trying to be break frame or things that haven't happened before um, in the history of, of uh, you know, different toy making. So I think in that space, that's where we have, again, the privilege of a large corporation is you have like a team of lawyers to analyze and go through intellectual property of a whole quality assurance team who can work with these different regulators and governments to discuss, um, you know, the proposals and things like that. So I think in a smaller scale, like a startup or an individual product design, I think the best, my advice there would be to try to consult experts where you can, but to, as, as long as there's, from my perspective, consideration to safety um, and a lot of work on that side specifically, then I think that's where you can push back on the rest of it because you're kind of focused on the ultimate true, like most important part of, you know, well-being. Uh, I'm gonna give the classic answer for anything design. It depends, really, it truly does. Uh, because 
the question was in regards to government. So with government, if you're in the in Canada or the United States, they have okay laws around uh, like accessibility. Um, however, if you're dealing with things on a global scale where maybe the country does not have any accessibility uh, laws, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, I think that training is always good and important thing to have for uh, people, but not just once, because it's like, if you work out once a year, you're not in shape, right? <laughs> so you cannot do that with your learning around inclusion and accessibility. You have to have it ongoing. So I know of an organization that actually does monthly trainings, which I think is awesome. They're a big, a, a big company, and they do monthly trainings on accessibility, which is good, right? Bring in a different guest speaker every month have somebody learn something new every month. Because the, the truth is, it is an ongoing learning thing, right? You don't just do it once, you have to keep going. And it does depend on what your team has the capability of doing, right? Some people know a lot, some people know a little, some people don't have the time. Uh, so what can you do within the context of your situation? Uh, but ongoing training and learning, I think is key. I don't really know how to answer this question. I just heard government, I thought of the United States and I was like, it's a hot mess. <laughs> it's just a mess. But you know what? I am about regulation when I, when I think about AI and I appreciated Allison what you said and I'm just like all in it with the regulation. I guess the thing I would say is, I don't know if y'all know about this like, like you know, bunch of thought leaders and AI folks who sent out um, this like, it was like an op-ed piece and they were like calling for like a pause. Yeah, I and, heard about this. Right? With like chat GBT and like, um, like we need to stop. Like we need to pause because it's going to get out of control. And one of the questions they had asked was like they had, they had spoken to like um, folks in, who were developing AI and asked like, what's, okay, what is the percentage? Um, what a percentage do you think that there's a chance of like AI, like not necessarily destroying humans, but like severely like, debilitating our way of life. Anyway, they landed on 10%. I'm like, that feels high. Hi. <laughs> and so the question was like, if you were gonna get on an airplane and they were like, this had the 10% chance of crashing, like, would you get on that plane? I don't think I would. So I think that already is like pretty indicative that like something needs to be done. I don't know how to approach that animal, especially with, like the legality of it. It just moves so fast. But I'm just kind of terrified, but also fascinated by AI development and all that it entails. Okay, so this segues really nicely into this question and anyone can answer it. We don't have to like go in a row. Okay, good. Um, I know, because Sharad, you're always <laughs> last. So this question is specifically about this issue, right? Of like taking a pause. So someone asks, how do I create a business case for slow and intentional design? And how do you bring folks on board to intentional program and service design when you know that there's a financial cost? It's really tough. Um, I worked on some products for a period of time that were some of the slowest development cycles. Like our product development cycles range from about eight months is the shortest timeline. Um, but the maximum we ever typically touch on is close to two years. Um, and I've been a part of some of those two-year timelines. And I watched like the most senior folks interdisciplinary 
join these weekly meetings as we went through all these tests and all these experiments and all these trials and validations and things we've never done for a year in it to just get cut. And that product never made it to market and that technology is not out there now. So it's so tricky because the amount of money we probably put into that and it, you know, it's a, it's a risk reward situation because had it happened and had it been great and worked well, then, you know, there would have been like a big reward at the end. So I think this one is particularly tricky. Like I don't have a perfect answer. I think what comes to mind is if there's micro deliverables that are possible to help justify if there are, if the business case is really strong for the end result and what's possible and what's capable um, and helping to articulate everything that's needed and why um, I think can, can help support. But my personal experience is that the reality is that it's a, it's a, it's an uphill battle. Like you're, you're, you're going to at least need something in the short term to justify it is would be my best guess. You want to meet up? Okay. I'll just say this. I'm so over making a case. <laughs> I don't want to make any more cases. <laughs> We've been talking about this for 7,980,000 years. <laughs> What's there to make a case for? Like, just open your eyes, look around. We've made the case. And I had felt so many times, it was, I felt like it was demeaning making a business case. And after a while, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing it. If you don't know why, don't work with us. Just don't, you know? So um, that's what I got to say. I actually, can, just to speak on that, I respect that so much. Like, I run our sustainability committee yeah. and I'll present these, like, recycled resin options I'll be like look we can save like yeah. hundreds of thousands of pounds of plastic and they're just like mm, I don't know though I'm like come on like <laughs> really like it, it, they, you can get so distracted by money and and it's like are we I, I've never had the courage to just be like it's climate change is that the business case like it's tough it's so exhausting it really is uh, plus one to that uh, when I was a senior manager of user experience design I had a hefty, I had a lot of work to do uh, in terms of getting a, a website in order, an app in order. And so the way that I approached it was small wins, right? So when you have, you, I mean, the truth is people work for companies and these companies need to make money. This is the real world we live in and there are deadlines and there are things that we have to get done. And so what are those small wins that you can get along the way? They don't have to be really big things. It could be just like a small thing. We fix this thing. It's improving the search engine optimization on this. So those little small things could be really, really helpful. I think if you can make the, if you have a really long, years long plan, what are those small wins throughout uh, that you can take and then present, right? That even though it may not be a huge moneymaker, eventually it will be right so it's like <laughs> try your best it's yeah. tough i really i i i oh, sorry, go ahead. No, i was just gonna say that there's also so much evidence you know it's like i think sylvia up here earlier with like the investing and like, it was like 15 trillion dollars that's <laughs> like uh these stats like this this is pretty evident this is like a money maker you know what i mean if that's all you're focused on so at what point you know is it, I mean, because the thing is, it just kind of goes like this. It's like out of style, then it's in mm -hmm. style. Then you're back having the same combo. Then it goes out of style, then it's in style. 
it's just going to keep coming back anyway, you know? So when is it like, no, we have to actually fundamentally at the root shift? Mm -hmm. I was going to echo as well the small wins. So in academia, we're very used to our work taking a very long time and sometimes going literally nowhere. So the small wins are definitely a good thing. And often you don't even notice them. Like I think that they're so like much emphasis put on things that are going wrong that sometimes you even can't even recognize, you know, like when something is going well. And so I think that's where it's helpful to have like a community where someone can say like, hey, Vanessa, that was really cool. That thing that you did. Like you need that kind of like support as part of your self-care as well. Um, what about the end point? So how do you know when a product or service is inclusive? Like how do you measure that success? How do you evaluate it? When my friends with disabilities can use it, I mean, to be honest, that's how I get a lot of feedback with uh, things when they, for example, a few weeks ago, I had a friend of mine who is, and she does audio descriptions, very amazing audio descriptions, by the way, if anybody watches the JLo on Netflix, she did the audio descriptions for it. Yeah, she's awesome. But she was on, you know, we were on Zoom and she was trying to do something and it was a great example for my students to see how bad, how badly, when, when websites are designed badly and the hierarchy doesn't make sense and someone is using a screen reader, how unusable it is. In my book, I have a ch chapter three is called, if it's not accessible, I mean, if it's not, if it's, it's annoying, if it's not accessible, or if it's, I, I can't remember right now because I'm on the stage, but <laughs> if it's annoying, people can't use it. <laughs> Right. It's, it's like people with disabilities. It's it's if it's annoying for you, it's impossible for people with disabilities. I will say that. And so my students got to see there and they're going, oh, no. you know. And I said, yeah, this is why you all need to learn this stuff. So you don't do this. So people don't get frustrated. And again, don't get left out of things. So that's for me is is how I how I learn is, is through uh, friends with lived experience. Yeah, I think that that feedback loop is really important at the end. And for us, it's uh, consumer reviews. We have, you know, tools on Amazon and things like that to show us, again, in the scale of the hundreds of thousands of products we're taking out, what are the, we, we can actually analyze the data of the, the reviews that were coming back and what is the feedback. Um, and again, I think that this drives the types of products that we're creating moving forward because we can then take that, those analytics and, and, reintegrate them in. Um, but again, the I think in the context of trying to make sure that the design is as most inclusive as possible, I think there's, it, it's kind of as we're sprinting <laughs> to create all these products, it's like even remembering to do that and, and doing that feedback loop, um, making sure that there is time in the development cycle and in the, in the product development lens to actually do that work because it's, I think, really easy to overlook and to just be kind of go, go, go. So carving out that space, whether it's even like a parallel path so that you're getting it done at the same time, I think is, is really valuable. I was going to give a client example. Do it. I'm not. No. <laughs> I'm not. I'm going to give another example because okay. we were talking about it last night and it's fresh in my mind and I'm really proud of it. And you know, when I mentioned earlier, like when you're doing this work, you're like, oh, um, 
I'm not equitable here, I'm here, I'm hoarding here, I'm this here, and you start to see it, and it's tough to see, but it's like necessary because you have to practice what you're talking about. And we were hiring um, a program manager for this program we were running, and we like redesigned the hiring, our hiring process. We're like, well, how could this be more, like how could we make this like equitable? Well, let's look at what we know. Well, we know that, you know, um, women, women identifying folks, people of color, et cetera, will often like, we won't apply for jobs because we'll be like, well, we're not qualified. We don't have this and that. So on the job description, we specifically were like, if you are called to this position, you should apply. You know, the stats show that you won't because blah, blah, blah. Let us make that decision. Don't worry about that, like still applying. And, uh, you know, we got so much feedback like, oh, I was really scared to apply, but you said I could, so I'm applying. And then we're sifting through like so many applications. We were like, oh, mm. <laughs> so but, um, <laughs> no, but it was like so beautiful. And we just started doing these small like experiments. We're like, um, you know, we we also um, were like super transparent throughout the process. We had a, a mishap during one of the stages of the process. Like we had a total, you know, something we did not see and. We got called out very gracefully by someone who applied. Hmm. And then I reached out to everyone and was like, we are redesigning the second half of this process because one of you called us out. Thank you so much. We're going to change it. And then we compensated folks who made it to the final round for the amount of time it would have taken them, like just hmm. to prep for the interview, to be at the interview. And we compensated them at the hourly rate that they would have been uh, paid. And we got so much incredible feedback and it it really didn't take that much it it really didn't and like the the response was so affirming and then then like tracking that process being able to share it with folks sharing our cover letter with our our cover letter with people who asked us because they wanted to model it using our own language was so liberating it was so liberating so I want to share that. So I have to say this is the second time today that I've heard of this, and I wonder if it's your work, but someone on the applicant side just was telling me about seeing that statement and how powerful it was to see the statement that said that, you know, we know that women and minorities typically need more evidence to apply, like, let us make that decision. So it's having an effect out there. Mm -hmm. There you go. Do either of you want to add? No, we're good. Okay. So going back to kind of like the education thread, which everyone has kind of touched on here. Um, really thinking about how do we center inclusivity in what we're teaching in terms of design? Because I think we do teach design early without calling it design. Like even some of the stuff, so my son's in grade two, like he'll bring home things and it's design, but they just, you know, it's not formally called design, but there's no mention of you know, who's going to be using it, or it's just like, for fun, let's invent this thing, right? By the way, you have my son's dream job of being a toy inventor. <laughs> so just as an FYI. So how do we kind of like create that mindset in the education space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there's so many different strategies to to approach this. And I, I'm glad that you brought up kids, because I think in the in the diversity and engineering space, we often are talking about the leaky pipeline because um, if you're unfamiliar with the stats, we're not even at 20% women in engineering in Canada right now. So women and the issue of women is, is significant in engineering. And we have this 30 by 30 goal that by 2030, we'll have 30% of newly licensed professional engineers to be women 
by the year 2030. Um, so that's kind of what we're tracking towards in the profession of engineering right now. And when we think about the leaky pipeline, it's as young as, I think if they say like grade four or five is when girls start thinking they're not good at math and that it's lame and all these things. So it's really important for that education piece to happen as young as elementary school, high school, university, professional, like there's so many different moments for that to, to come in. Um, and I think it's, it's, we've, I think we've mentioned a few different strategies, things like lunch and learns. Um, like we had a, an inclusive product design lunch and learn specifically that all, all of our designers and engineers attended. And it was folks talking about, um, you know, ableism in design and really you could see all the designers lighting up. Cause I don't think that it's not always so explicitly talked about exactly as you're saying. Um, and then the mention about how computer scientists don't always have an ethics course, like in, in engineering, we do have strong ethics courses throughout our degree. And um, I think that that really helps promote this premise of uh, technological stewardship, um, if you've not heard of it. And it's the idea that as engineers, we are stewards of technology. Um, and we are so interwoven into the technology that we're helping to create um, and design. And it's really thinking about that complex lens. And I think Today, people are talking about this premise of technological stewardship so much more. So I, I have seen a lot of improvements over time. And again, like you need the systems to change a little bit. You need to to you need the innovation to come out that's promoting that business case and things like that, so that we can continue to move these things forward and more folks of color and, and queer folks and women in leadership um, and getting that diversity to help. The decision makers you know like have that those additional lenses so um i'm hopeful that things are kind of going into the right direction to get that education piece like throughout more i would say uh making your presentations accessible mm -hmm. i think that's an important piece a lot of people do not do um i'll be like look at that thing on the screen i'm way back there i can't see what that thing is or i'm blind i can't see what that thing is so could you describe it? So one of the things I think that's important is that people can, if possible, describe what's on the screen. Don't just say that thing. Or if you have graphs, make sure that there's a detailed explanation or you're detailing it, make sh making sure that there's captions on your video, right? That there's transcripts available later um, if people want to watch it later. Making your presentations accessible is something everybody in this room can do. It is something that takes practice. And I, I want to say this real quick because I know we're running out of time. It takes practice to be inclusive. And it's okay if you mess up. I mess up all the time. But how do you learn? Right? So practice inclusion, practice accessibility, practice making your presentations more accessible because you never know who is watching it. I was on a Zoom um, a while back and I was presenting, and but I described everything on my slides. At the very end, someone said, thank you for describing that. I'm blind. I had no idea who was on. You don't know. So I'll just say that. When I think about inclusivity in design, actually what I, I, I don't have a design background. I didn't go to design school or anything like that, but um, I got the chance to be an adjunct teacher at NYU to kind of share our framework, you know, and uh, I will say that they were, they were seniors 
And at the end of when the course ended, they were pissed. They were pissed. They were like, why are we just talking about this now? Mm -hmm. Why are we learning these things now? Why are we learning that seatbelts were not made for folks who are pregnant or have breasts? Like, why? Like, all we talk about is creating and technology and design. And we should have been learning about this like our mm -hmm. freshman year. So I'm hopeful that this, I think this should just, just should be like core foundational education, like right from the get. So we have, you know, only a couple minutes left. Um, just each of you, if you were giving people advice on, you know, we have a lot of people here who probably want to incorporate inclusive design into whatever products and services they have. What do you think are the most important things to think about, you know, in terms of implementation? Um, literally 30 seconds each. Uh, do your best would be my number one piece of advice. If you are doing any amount of effort or intentional thinking about this at all, you're already doing better than other folks. So just try not to be hard on yourself about doing it perfectly. Like uh, anything is better than nothing. Um, and perfection is probably unattainable anyways. So um, yeah, that's my, that's my snippet. <laughs> uh, mine is include people with disabilities and pay them. Nice. Uh, mine is this work is hard, so also make sure that you are joyful and do things that bring you joy. And I will just say, with very little seconds left, Reginae and I found out that we were both attending the Beyonce concert in London on the same day. Okay? That's joy. Okay? So, you know, bring that into that, too. It's actually critical if you're doing this work. Like, you, you, you have to do it or you will burn out. So now we know more about what nothing about us without us means. That principle was underlined in all of the panels at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. Designing for everyone means assuring deep engagement with all communities, in particular the most marginalized ones. It makes me think of the curb cut effect. When the Disability Act required cities to create cuts and curbs so that wheelchairs could get down from sidewalks to be able to cross streets, it turns out that wheelchair users weren't the only ones to benefit. If you were pulling rollerboard luggage down the sidewalk, you benefited. If you were a parent pushing a stroller, you benefited. If you were a worker pushing a delivery trolley, you benefited. So the effort to be more inclusive for people with disabilities made the city more inclusive for everyone. That's what designing for everyone is all about. Thank you for listening to this limited edition Gate Audio Production Podcast. If you haven't listened to them already, I hope you will check out the other six episodes in this series and other Gate Audio podcasts, including our signature podcast, Busted, where we bust common myths about gender and other forms of inequality. Just search for Institute for Gender in the Economy where you get your podcasts. Of course, you can help us get the word out by liking and following the podcast and telling your friends. We are nowhere without our community of listeners. If you want to keep learning, head to our website at genderanalytics.org, where you can discover our online course offerings and much more. This podcast was produced by me, Sarah Kaplan, and edited by Ian Gormley. We are grateful for support from the Rotman School's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab, who co-hosted the Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference with GATE. Thanks for listening. <laughs>